Um, I got Marvin get my whiteboard and my markers and my eraser. We're going to dig into the text. So if you would open your Bibles to Genesis 34, we're going to dig into some good stuff. And Jackie Whitaker keeps reminding me, can you please either write the words out that you're talking about or put them in a slide or something? I'm, you're losing me here. Can you grab my markers and eraser right over there? So I'm going, to, I'm going to try to write them on the whiteboard today, just a little bit, a few of the words. But we got a lot of ground to cover. So we left off with Jacob and his whole entourage. How many sons does he have at this point? Twelve sons. And how many daughters that we know about so far? One. Her name was Dina. Okay, can anybody list all twelve? No, I'm just kidding. You don't need to do that. But they become later, you know, they become the twelve tribes of Israel, right? And the twelve sons of Israel. They become a nation, Eventually, we'll find out. Now, they left the household of Laban. Uh, they, they, um, they bugged out, right? And they went towards the land that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the land of Canaan. And Laban was super happy about this, right? No, he wasn't. No. And he chased after them, right? And he caught up with them. And uh, he's like, why'd you guys have to do this? Why'd you leave in the dead of night, right? And do all this stuff, and... And remember, he's like, um, and by the way, who stole my household idols? And who ended up stealing the household idols? Rachel did. Did Jacob know that Rachel stole them? No. No, she didn't. And then what did Jacob say? If you find the idols, whoever has them, what? Will surely die. Yeah. And uh, we're going to find out later that she dies before her time. She, she dies prematurely, we'll find out. Um, very sad. But they, they continue on and they get near a town, a city. What is the name of the city? Shechem. Shechem. Yeah, Shechem. And uh, it says they pitch their tents. They set up camp near the city. And I always said there's a biblical principle. Whenever you see someone traveling to, facing towards, you know, or like moving towards a city, other than, I should add, other than Jerusalem, usually bad things are about to happen. Bad things are about to happen. All right. So they, they set up camp there, and that's where we kind of leave. Shechem is now the city of Nablus. If you go to Israel today, it is a very cont- highly contested and controversial uh, place in the city of Nablus. But that is ancient, ancient Shechem. He pitched his tent there, it says in 33, in verse 20. There he put up an altar, which he called El Elohai Yisrael, the God, the God of Israel, where we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 30. Jacob is a broken man. Jacob has experienced a spiritual revival in his own life. And he's, he's kind of recommitted himself to the God of, of his father, right? And I said last week, a, an unbroken man needs a cathedral to be inspired, but a broken man sees a face of God everywhere. And Jacob is kind of at that point. And, um, but are his sons? <laughs> we'll find out. It says in verse one, one time Dina the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Yaakov, went out to visit the daughters of the land, the, the Benota Aretz, as it, is, as it is in Hebrew, the daughters of the land. And Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hevi, the local ruler, saw her and took her, and he laid with her, and he anah her. Now, let me pause here before I get into this word anah. The, the, the word take, anytime you see this word take in scripture, anytime you see this word, if a human being is taking something or someone, it's bad. Bad things will happen. Anytime you see God taking, it's good. 
So just that's a that's a common it's a it's a principle through scripture. Whenever the Bible says and he took or she took for himself, that's it doesn't end well. But when it says God took, like it used um, it says that God took from Adam's side and he made Eve. But any time a human takes, it's bad. So this this word where it says he saw her, he took her and he laid with her. That's the, the idea of seizing the fruit, right? He saw with his eyes. Our eyes are so, our, our vision is so compelling. Yeshua says, if your right eye sins against you, do what? Luck it, Luck it out. Yeah, our eyes are so powerful, aren't they? So he took her, and then he, he in the Hebrew, it's ana. It's, the letter is ein, and then nun, and then hey. Is this better, Jackie? <laughs> ana. What's the vowels in there? Ana. It means, go, uh, go to Genesis uh, 15, 13 real quick. Genesis 15, 13. Get a better idea what this word is. Genesis 15, 13. Where else is, is it used? You there? And it's God speaking prophetically to Abraham. He says to Avram, you know for this for certain. Your descendants will be foreigners in a land that is, that, that is not theirs. They will be held as slaves and held in Anna. Anna for 400 years. Go with me to uh, 16.6. Genesis 16.6. 6. Genesis 16, verse 6. However, holding me in contempt, may Adonai decide... Oh, I'm sorry. I, I messed up. However, Avram answered Sarai, look, she is your slave girl. Do with her as you think fit. Then Sarah anad her. Treated, what does it say in your, what does it say in your Bibles? Like oppressed or treated harshly that she ran away from her. Now go to Exodus 1 verse 11. Where else is this word used? Exodus 1 verse 11. Genesis, Exodus 1. Verse 11. So they put slave masters over them to anna them with forced labor. So you get the idea, anna, it means to oppress or to like humiliate, right? So let's go back to Genesis chapter 34 where it says that he, who is this Hamor, he took her and he laid with her and he humiliated her. Now, your translation may say rape. It could be rape, but it also could be that there is a social kind of uh, um, um, stigma that comes with someone who's having sex out of the confounds of marriage. It could be that this is non-consensual sex, or it could be that it's consensual outside of marriage. But either way, she is humiliated in this process because in her culture, in her family, they don't do that. In verse 3, it says... But actually, he was strongly attracted to Dina, the daughter of Yaakov. He fell in love with the girl and tried to win her affection. Shechem spoke with his father Hamor and said, Take, here's that word again, take this Yalada. Yalada. Now, Yalada is like Yud, Lamed, uh, Dalet, Hey. Yalada. Take this Yalada. Now, this is derived from the word Yeled, which is what? A boy. A boy or a child. Now, Yeleda is a child girl. Now, is this, 
It it can speak to the potential, potentially speak to the age of Dina. This was a very young girl. Do you get where I'm going with this? So here is this ruler of the city. I don't know how old she was exactly, but here's a ruler of a city. I would assume is maybe a little bit, a little bit older, and he sees this attractive young girl, and he oppresses her with his status. He oppresses her with his um, with his wealth and his physical power. Then he's like, "Well, I love you." Right? And ladies in the room, listen, young ladies especially, listen to me. There are men in this world who are 100% scumbags who will tell you that they love you, but in all actuality want to experience something physical with you that will just bring them pleasure. Yes, there are men in this world that are liars. And they will they will they will manipulate you with their words and even physical gifts or physical affection to get what they want. Do not trust them. And he says, I want her to be my wife. Verse five. When Yaakov heard that he had, the word here is tameh, made, made her tameh. It's tets, and then a mem, and then a yud. Tameh. He made her, uh, like the word is, it, like my translation has, defiled. This is, this is used Tameh is used in Leviticus 11, that chapter alone, it's used 19 times in Leviticus chapter 11. What is chapter 11 all about? It's food. It's all about food. If you eat this, it makes you Tameh. If you touch that, it makes you Tameh. Tameh is like impure or defiled in some way. So it says, when Yaakov heard that he had made Dina, his daughter, Tameh, his son's were with his livestock in the field. So Yaakov restrained himself until they came. Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Yaakov to speak with him. And just as Yaakov's sons were coming in from the field, when they heard what had happened, the men were saddened and were very angry at the outrage this man had committed against Israel by laying with Yaakov's daughter, something that is simply not done. You see, sex must meet four conditions or else it should not be had. Four conditions. Here they are. Number one, adults. Number one, adults. Number two, consenting adults. It has to be mutual. It has to be mutual desire. Number three, married. So married, consenting adults. Number four, who are opposing genders. Those four things are prerequisites for sex. If one of those four things is not present, you have unbiblical, ungodly sex. Okay? But Hamor said to them, my son, chashak. Now this word is chet, shin, kuf. Chet, shin, and then a kuf. Chashak for the nefesh of your daughter, nefesh. It's like, it's used in Exodus 27, a lot in Exodus 27 when dealing with the, the, the furnishings of the tabernacle, when it says that you should, um, you should furnish this room with this particular article and this gold or this, you know, different things. It's used a lot in Exodus, but it's saying that basically my son feels incomplete without your daughter's soul. So even the, the father's in on this now. 
He says, please give her to him as his wife and intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You will live with us and the land will be available to you. You'll live, do business and acquire possessions here. See, this is like the siren song of this uh, temporal world, what it sings to us as believers. Settle down. This is your home, right? Live in the world and be of the world. You know, chase after success. Um, it, your value is dictated by your possessions or your home or your, your career. And that's all false, right? And that's, that's the same thing as being pitched here to Yaakov. He's saying, hey, just take it easy. Why do you, you guys don't need to go anywhere else. Just settle down. You know, there's a local bank over there and just you can pull out a mortgage and, and, and hang out. We have, you know, really nice HOA and um, it's a really, really nice neighborhood. And he says in verse 11, then Shechem said to her father and brothers, only accept me and I will give it whatever you tell me. Ask for a large bride price as you like. I'll pay whatever you tell me. Just let me marry the Na'ar. Now it switches here to the, the Hebrew word Na'ar. A young woman. Which is actually a young woman. So they're actually, um, I think it's Snoon Ayn Reish. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but it's Na'ar. It's a young woman. So they're actually obscuring, possibly obscure, obscuring the fact that this is actually a Yelada. He's saying, give me the Na'ar. And the sons of Yaakov answered Shechem and Hamor, his father. They answered him in a way that was, the Hebrew is Mirma. Mirma. It's Mim, uh, uh, Resh, Mim, Hey. In a way that was deceitful. In a way that was deceitful. Mirma. Now I have up here uh, Proverbs 12, 5. It says, um, if you want to turn there, you can. Machshavot, which is like the imaginings, the schemings, uh, the thoughts. Machshavot, which is actually the, um, the modern Hebrew word for computers. Machshavot zedekim, the, the thinkings, the thoughts of, a right, of the righteous ones. Mishpat tachvulot um, are like... Are like um, are like just, are righteous. But the takvulot, the counsel, the advice of the roshi, uh, I'm sorry, reshaim, of the evil ones, is mirma, is deceitful. Wow, whoever's writing this proverb knows full well that Hebrew word was used way back in Genesis chapter 34 when it says that the brothers of Dinah dealt with these leaders of Shechem in a way that was deceitful, mirma. And in doing so, the writer of Proverbs, in this particular Proverbs, is calling them like reshaim, which is like evil ones. Now, wait a second. I thought that Jacob had a personal revival in his household, didn't he? Didn't Jacob kind of have a come to Jesus time? And he's like, hey, God gave me all this. And God, I thank God for all of this stuff. And he kind of like came, remember this last chapter? And let's go back to the land that God told me to go to and he gave to our ancestors. But here the brothers apparently didn't catch on to that. They did not internalize that. 
they were still deceitful. And it says in verse 14, they said to them, we can't do it because it would be a disgrace to give our sister to someone who is Orla. Orla means like to have a, like a blockage, literally, but it's uncircumcised. Now, this is harking back to Genesis 17 now. These guys are invoking Genesis 17 and what God told Abraham to do, which was to be circumcised in the foreskin of your flesh. And that, that is a sign of the covenant. And these guys are like, oh, wait a second. No, we can't do this because we can't give our daughter to someone who's uncircumcised. Huh. Right? And they're invoking this, this, this covenantal sign. And they go, only on this condition will we consent to what you are asking. Remember, they're just being deceitful here. That you become like us, having every male among you get ma'ul, ma'ul, which is like circumcised. And even today, like in um, Jewish homes, when a young man is circumcised, uh, he's, it's done typically by a trained, um, sometimes a rabbi, uh, but it's not always a rabbi, but they're called a mo'el. And they are someone who's trained at doing ritual circumcision, and which literally would translate to a circumciser. But he's saying, have every male circumcised, then we'll give our daughters to you, and we'll take uh, uh, your daughters for ourselves, and we'll live with you, and we'll become la'am echad. Like one um, one people. That's not good, right? But if you won't do as we say and get circumcised, we'll take our daughter and we'll go away. Verse 18. They, and they said, they said, it seemed fair to Hamor and Shechem, the son of Hamor. And the young man did not put off doing what was asked of him, even though he was the most respected member of his father's family. Because he so much wanted Yaakov's daughter. So Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the entrance of the city and spoke with his leading men. These people are peaceful toward us, they said. Therefore, let us live in the land and do business in it. Let them live in the land and do business in it. For, as you can see, the land is large. It's Rehobet is in Hebrew, Rehoboth, where we get the town Rehoboth. It's very large for them. Let us take their daughters as wives for ourselves. And we'll give them our daughters. But the people will consent to live with us and become one people. Am echad. Only on this condition that every male among us gets circumcised. And they themselves are circumcised. Won't their cattle, their possessions, and all their animals be like ours? Only let's consent and do what they ask. And they'll live with us. Everyone going out the city, city's gate listened to Hamor and Shechem, his son. So every male was given a large amount of Novocaine and... No, it doesn't say that, does it? And it says, every male was circumcised. Everyone that went out of the gate of the city. Wow. These guys are either really gullible or he's really in love with this woman. <laughs> or both. But they go through with it. And it says, on the third day, after the circumcision, when they were in pain... This is the very first occurrence in the, in the entire Bible. We see this word uh, in pain. Two of Yaakov's sons, Shimon and Levi, Dina's brothers, took their swords 
Let's pause here and let's talk about these guys. I'm gonna, can I erase these words up here and make a little bit of room? I just did. Too late. You guys remember uh, the name Shimon and what it means? Anybody have any guesses? I've heard it before, but I forgot what it is. She, uh, I think it's Mim, Shimon, and the final noon. Shimon? Shimon. Uh, it's a it's a cognitive it's a it's a cognate word. Am I saying that right? Conjunction between shema, shema, which means what? Shema here and listen here and listen here and then ona, 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 hey, shema ona. Like the Lord has heard my affliction, is what she named Shimon. Shima Ona. He heard my Ona. Okay? Now, you could also say that this, this name is, um, is a derivative of a couple other words. Um, I have it written down here. I don't want to mess it up. Sham. A place. Sham. And then, I don't want to spell it wrong. Avon. Uh, Sham Avon. Sham is a place. Avon is the highest level of sin that a human being can commit. Avon is willful sin of which there is no sacrifice in the temple worship system to cover that. It's deliberate sin. Avon. So his name could be, the Lord has heard my affliction. It could also be a derivative of Sham Avon, a place of sin. You see, within Shimon is a, is a wicked heart, is the capability of, of, of doing great good and powerful for the kingdom, but also is the capability and the capacity to do great evil, Avon. What about the name Levi? How do you spell that in Hebrew? I think it's Bates and then you. Levi. You remember what his name meant? Well, we have Lev. The word Lev is what? Hearts. Hearts and a yud, it's like a connector piece. This is literally means to be joined. And remember, when he was born, his mother said, Finally, I can be joined to Jacob. Right? Levi is a joiner, he's someone who brings people together. He should be someone who connects two parties together. Levi, to be joined. So we have Shimon, the one he has heard my affliction. And Levi to be joined. And these guys are hotheads. These guys have an anger problem. We're going to see them pop up throughout the story of the Torah and some of their descendants. They tend, especially Levi, tends to be a little bit bloodthirsty at times. And it says here, oh, by the way, which of these two sons did Yosef take into his custody in prison when Yosef was in Egypt? You remember? Shimon. He took Shimon. Why Shimon? And why not like uh, Reuben or Judah? Some of the older ones. <laughs> because Shimon, he... Now, this is me speculating here. I think he feared, and he knew his history, that <laughs> if he kept Shimon and Levi together, these two guys would just invade Egypt and take control of Egypt. <laughs> These guys together were bad news. I need to split them up. That's just me speculating. But 
says uh, Shimon and Levi, Dina's brothers, took their swords and they boldly, like, without resistance, descended on the city and they slaughtered. They slaughtered. This word slaughter here is harag. Harag. Let me write it out here. Are you guys tired of me writing Hebrew words? Are you okay with that? Okay. Thanks. Thanks for the feedback. Okay. But young woman, not harag. 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 And it literally means to slay in cold blood, to kill in cold blood. Harag. Somebody guess where's the first occurrence we see of this in the Torah? When he kills his son. Got it. Yep. Cain kills his brother. Got it. Genesis 4, 8. Genesis 4, 8 is the very first occurrence of harag. It is a cold-blooded murder. Harag. Okay. It says they slaughtered all the males. They, they killed Hamor and Shechem, his son, with their swords, took Dina out of Shechem's house, and they left. There's the deceit, right? They lied, and then they murdered. The sons of Yaakov entered over the dead bodies of those who had been slaughtered and plundered the city in reprisal for defiling their sisters. So they lied, they m- committed mass murder, and then they committed grand theft. All right? Now, let me pause here, and Xavier pointed out to me this week uh, that the book of Jubilees, some people come in our midst and they say, oh, if you read Jubilees, I'm really into Jubilees, and Jubilees is this, and it's that, and it's really cool. Well, the book of Jubilees actually praises these young men for doing this. It's in direct conflict to the Torah. So people, be very careful reading the book of Jubilees. It is not, it is not divinely inspired. And if there's any teacher you're listening to out there that's constantly going into the book of Jubilees and explaining things from the book of Jubilees as if they're truthful, as if they are divinely inspired, turn them off. They don't know what they're talking about. Or they do and they're just trying to get your money. Or both. Now, it's, it's an interesting book. Don't get me wrong. But it's like, I mean, on a level of like Moby Dick or something like that. But it says, um, they took their flocks, cattle and donkeys and everything else whether in the city and in the field, everything they owned, their children and their wives, they took captive and they looted whatever was left in the house. Yeah, the book of Jubilees says that they were actually, it was reckoned to them for righteousness. And that's why Levi got chosen to be a priest, the the priestly tribe. Uh Uh-uh. We'll talk about why Levi got chosen to be a priestly tribe here in a minute. Verse 30. But Yaakov said to Shimon and Levi, you have caused me achar. Achar, and it's like um, great trouble, great affliction. Remember, Jacob's trying to clean house here. Jacob's trying to scratch his way out of this generational cycle of deceit and manipulation and lying and coercion. He's trying to get out of that. And he's like, guys, what have you done? It's like a scene in a movie where this one guy walks into the saloon in the Western, you know, and he, he finds the one guy that... that um, did something or spat on his boot or whatever, and he's surrounded by all his buddies, and he just whips his pistol out and shoots that one guy. It's like as achar. He just brought on himself trouble. What did you just do? You just kicked a hornet's nest, is what he's saying to his sons. And little tidbit here: there's actually a man in First Chronicles chapter two who is named achar, and it says in First Chronicles two seven that he was the troubler. His name was achar, and he was the achar of Israel. It's really interesting. I'm going to read that. First Chronicles 2. But it says, You have caused me to ba'ash. Ba'ash. Which literally means to smell bad. Ba'ash. Ba'ash. You caused me to stink. 
in the opinion of the local inhabitants, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Since I don't have many people, and they outnumber me, they'll align themselves together against me and attack me. He's thinking personal security here. I want to live. I got I to gotta make it to the land of Canaan. I got I to gotta flourish here. And you guys just kicked a hornet's nest. And all these tribes now, all these people groups, these city-states, they're going to now come against us. Why did you do this? And they'll attack us. And I'll be destroyed. And I and my household. Now, is this a possibility? For Jacob's household to be destroyed? No. Why? God promised. Your descendants will be like the grains of sand, stars of the sky. You see, Jacob is... He's having a moment of dread and fear, isn't he? A little doubt. And they replied, should we let our sister be treated like a zona, uh, like, a, like a harlot, someone who gets paid to have sex? Now, this zona is, um, is what Tamar, Judah's daughter-in-law, will pretend to be later on. A zona. But the worst pain or abuse or injustice a person can experience is pain, abuse, or injustice dealt to them from a seemingly religious or seemingly godly individual doing so in the name of their religion or in the name of their God. Why? Because this is one of the fastest ways to turn a human being away from the kingdom of God. It's hypocritical at its core. It claims to represent the face of God, but in reality demonstrates the wickedness of humanity's heart. Some of the most difficult counseling I, Gabe Rutledge, have ever had to walk through with people was due to hurt caused to them by someone claiming to be righteous. Even in my own life, some of the deepest, darkest moments of doubt and confusion and disappointment are results of people seeing, uh, claiming and seeming to be righteous, causing me great uh, distress. Since the dawn of time, men and women have used aspects of the biblical faith to coerce, to threaten, or manipulate other humans. And men and women have used their place of authority to oppress others in the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A few examples, and not including Sim, uh, Simon and Le- uh, Levi here, few examples, and I, I texted several guys this week, and I asked them, uh, hey, you guys, give me some examples of, of people using, using their position of power or their authority, maybe God-given authority, to oppress other human beings. And we came up with a few. And uh, Anthony came up with one. He said, the story of David and his scheme against Uriah. He gets one of his top general's wives pregnant sends his general, Uriah, to a hot spot in the battle, knowing he will die, and does this just to cover up the sin of taking Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Wow. Jeremy pointed out how the sons of Samuel, the priest and the prophet of Israel, were both corrupt. They took bribes, they perverted justice, and they accumulated wealth to themselves. This, too, was the case with the sons of Eli. His sons used their position and power. If you look it up in 1 Samuel chapter 2, They used their position to rob, accumulate wealth, and even have sex with multiple women who served around the tabernacle in Shiloh. Wow. Then, of course, 
Christianity and the Roman Catholic Church have blood on its hands for committing great acts of murder, coercion, and forced conversions. Take, for example, the massacre of worms in the year 1096 during the First Crusade. It was this, in, in, that, in that massacre, it was a systematic, of, systematic murder of 800 to 1,000 Jews who were gathered together to celebrate Rosh Kodesh Sivan and refused to convert to Catholicism. Many atrocities and anti-Jewish laws were inspired by the founders of the Lutheran Church, Martin Luther. Some of you may know that. In one of Martin Luther's final books, The Jews and Their Lies, he writes, What shall we Christians do with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? Since they live among us, we dare not tolerate their conduct now that we are aware of their lying and reveling and blaspheming. He says, first, let's set fire to their synagogues or schools and to bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn so that no man will ever again see a stone or cinder of them. This is to be done in honor of the Lord and of Christendom, so that God might see that we are Christians and we do not condone or knowingly tolerate such public lying, cursing, blaspheming of his son and his Christians. Second, I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed, for they pursue in them this, the same aims as in their synagogues. Instead, they might be lodged under a roof or in a barn like the gypsies, this will bring home to them that they are not masters in our country, as they boast, but they are living in exile and in captivity, as they incessantly wail and lament about their God. Third, I advise that all their prayer books and their writings or Talmudic writings in which such idolatry, lies, and cursings and blasphemy are taught be taken from them. Fourth, I advise that the rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on the pain of loss of life and limb, for they have justly forfeited the right to such an office by holding the poor Jews captive with the, with the sayings of Moses in which he commands them to obey their teachers on penalty of death. Fifth, I advise that the safe conduct on highways be abolished completely for Jews, for they have no business in the countryside since they are not lords, officials, tradesmen, or the like. Let them stay home. Sixth, I advise that usury be permitted to them, which is like interest, high interest, and that all cash and treasure of silver and gold be taken from them and put aside for safekeeping. Seventh, I commend putting a flail, an axe, a hoe, a spade, a staff, or a spindle into the hands of young, strong Jews and Jewesses and let them earn their bread in the sweat of their brow as was imposed on the children of Adam. For it is not fitting that they should let us, um, let us, accursed Gentiles toil in the sweat of our faces while they, the holy people, idle away, away their time behind the stove, feasting and farting on top of all that, boasting blasphemy of their lordship over the Christians by means of our sweat. No one should toss out these lazy rogues by the seat of, uh, no, one should toss out these lazy rogues by the seat of their pants. Do you hear the hate this man is spewing? Where is Martin Luther from? Germany. Germany. Yeah. So yeah, what would happen... Just 400 short years later, a man would come to power, right? Hitler. And by then, all of Germany just about is practicing the religion of this man I just read. So you can see how over just four centuries, they're like, hey, how about we round up all these people and we put them in camps? How about we take all of their stuff? How about we like, prevent them from leaving the country? We take all their money. We seize their bank accounts. We burn down their synagogues. We burn their Torah scrolls. 
You can see how the German populace was primed for that via the writings of this anti-Semite named Martin Luther. But this and other tragedies are still a source of deep-seated mistrust and pain for Jews today. In the Bible, the people of Israel, and by extension, those who are grafted into Israel, are called a nation of priests. The responsibility being placed on them, on our shoulders, is to sanctify God's name in this world, and in doing so, draw others to him. The essence of a priest, guys, is someone who is called to suffer to connect people to God, like Levi, the connector, the joiner. And his descendants became the Levites, which were a whole tribe of connector people. God says, you know what? Because you are so bloodthirsty, I'm going to use you in a special way. You're going to have to use your, your thirst for blood to bring other people into worship to me. A priest is someone who loses much in this age to gain it all in the age to come. They take great pleasure in seeing others connect with their creator. One of the swiftest ways to experience and to see the wrath of God is to claim or walk in a priestly role and then profane the name of God while in it. This was the case in Yeshua's day and was one of his most poignant rebukes against the party of the Pharisees when he says in Matthew 23, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to do, do it. But do not do according to their works. For they say, and then do not do. They bind up heavy burdens that are hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their tefillin, their phylacteries, broad, and they enlarge their, their tassels and make them long. They love the best places at all the feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. See, that's what you guys are doing. You just... You want the, the lowly seats. That's why I no one wants to. Yeah, you're very humble that way. Thank you. <laughs> they love greetings in the marketplace and be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you devour widows' houses. And for a pretense, you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive a greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win a proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Wow. And I would argue that that problem is still persistent today, isn't it? There are people that are operating in a priestly role, and they are gaining much from it in terms of uh, physical wealth and notoriety. And they're using it as a, as a way to oppress people. We must always be on guard that we are not setting roadblocks in the path of those seeking God's kingdom. We must uphold truth and do it in pureness of heart and gentleness and in fear of God's wrath. In scripture, justice is likened to scales. 
You know, directly across from the Houston County Courthouse, have you guys ever seen that Justice Park right there? Yeah. And what is in the middle of that fountain? They got that uh, justice. Yeah, there is a lady justice, a statue of a woman, uh, and, and she's blindfolded. She's holding a sword in one hand and a set of scales in the other, right? Now, this, this lady justice, she's, she's um, based in part on the Roman goddess Justitia, which is the goddess of justice. But the biblical part is the scales. Uh, Proverbs 16.11 says, A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his works. So in other words, when something, when injustice is dealt someone, God, a righteous judge, is going to even the scales. Okay? It's called equal weights and measures. Debts must be paid. What is taken must be returned. We see this in the life of Levi, Levi. His descendants are chosen to suffer for the sake of the world as priests. They're not given an inheritance of the land. And they are relegated to living off of the gifts and offering of their brethren. We see Simeon, Shimon. His descendants are given land but it is surrounded by that of Judah's land. It's like a little island inside of the territory of Judah. As if to say, you have no autonomy and you are bound by the confines of your older brother Judah's control and sovereignty. There's some checks and balances, Shimon, the hothead. Remember uh, Simon Peter, named after Shimon, Shimon Kepha? Remember, what was his personality like, as far as we can tell? Remember when Yeshua was arrested in the garden? What did he do? Remember, yeah, he got angry. What did he do? Whipped out a sword and chopped off an ear, didn't he? He's like, I'll take that. It's interesting, his namesake, isn't it? So I take two big lessons from this week's reading in Genesis chapter 34. Number one, God will deal justly with those who claim to be agents of his goodness, yet are caught misrepresenting his character and nature. Secondly, every generation must be led to and given a choice of whether or not they will walk uprightly. We cannot make this decision for our children or our children's children. The very best that we can do is this. Represent the heart of God in its purest form and then pray. And I was talking with a... A lady before service started and her heart is deeply grieved and broken for a member of her family. Because, you know, and I was meeting with a family yesterday and we're talking like, how do we raise children in this world to where they will want to do the things that we do and want to have a relationship with our creator? You know my response? In short, I have no idea. Other than we have to reflect a genuine love and desire for the presence of God that will emanate out into our household. And we just have to hope and pray that they want that as well. I remember I was a 17-year-old kid and one of the best things my mom ever did for me because I was having a hard time getting out of bed on Sunday mornings and going to church with her. Uh, She said, you know what? You're 17, 
you have a car out there, you have a driver's license, I'm not going to hassle with you on Sunday mornings anymore. If you want to go to church, you'll get yourself out of bed and you'll go. If not, it's on you. If you want to get up and learn about Scripture and worship with other believers, it's on you. It's your decision to make. And I remember her saying that to me as she's walking out for church one Sunday morning and I was still in my pajamas or whatever, groggy-eyed, and thinking to myself, wow, I guess I do have to decide. And I remember in that moment thinking and playing through what my life looks like. I was at a very, and we talked last week about being at pivot points in your life. And that definitely for me was a pivot point. My mom and my dad are not, they're no longer going to force me to go to church with them. That sounds amazing. But wait a second. What what does that mean for my faith in my life? It's a decision that every generation has to make and come to. And we have to hope and pray that they too will desire that relationship. Sometimes that requires us to back off. It's a very scary thing to do with your children, right? Back off. It's like when they're trying to touch the candle flame when they're two years old. And you can sit there and you're trying to make dinner. And you can sit there and you can slap their hand a thousand times. You can blow out the candle and not have the candle that you wanted to have the pumpkin spice fill up the room or whatever. Or, what's the third option? Let them get burned. I will let them encounter that pain. And once I do, guess what? Someone's not going to stick their finger in the flame anymore. And it breaks my heart to see you in pain. It really does. But I can go cook dinner now. (laughs) Right? Here's an ice pack. Told you so. Right? I am smarter than you. Lo and behold. But sometimes it requires us to back up and allow them to brush up against what the world has to offer. And allow them to realize that in the world there is great confusion, there's exploitation, there's injustice apart from the precepts and the culture that our Savior Yeshua has to offer. If they get into the world and they see, you know what? There is a lot of messed up stuff in this world and there's nothing for me here. I want to go back home. Think of the, 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 they came to that decision on their own. That point forward, now it's theirs. Yes, you've got it. Let's close in prayer and then we'll do a brief uh, Q&A. Father, I thank you for your word, even though it is extremely messy at times. You have preserved that for us. You have kept that for us, even to this year of 2023, where these problems are still very relevant. The problem of man's wicked heart is still prevalent. And Father, may you give us all wisdom with our children, with the following generations. We just pray for them that as they brush up against the world, they will crave your presence even more. And I pray this in Yeshua's matchless name. Amen.